indubitably on the spot. Welcome into Old Sport Radio here on SportstownChicago.com. I am your host, Pat Riley. Feels great to be back here in the Fred Weintraub studio here at the Illinois Media School Lombard campus. It's been a few weeks since I've been able to get on these airwaves. For those of you wondering why I went one and done with my radio show, it's because I became a father. And my beautiful daughter, Kelly, was born on December 14th, and therefore I have taken the last few weeks to be with my wife and family uh, and help raise a beautiful baby girl. But I'm back, ready to get at it, and Tom Brady is a Super Bowl champion again. No matter how different the world seems to get, some things never seem to change, including Tom Brady winning Super Bowls. He wins his seventh first year with the Bucks. His 10th attempt, so he's now 7-3 and three in Super Bowls. Answers the question real quick, is it Brady? Was it Belichick? Brady leaves one season in. He's got another Super Bowl. So we'll see what Bill does to try and bounce back. But it's one of those things where you don't want to believe it, but at the same time, it's so easy to believe because it happens so frequently. And Tom Brady is just unarguably the most dedicated person to his craft, possibly to ever play professional sports. Doing what he did this year uh, at 43 years old. I know he came into a team with a lot of weapons, and uh, but this team was 7-5 and five at one point, and a lot of people were talking about the fact that they didn't think they were going to make the playoffs. And then they had their bye week, and they never lost again. They won seven straight games after that on their way to a Super Bowl title. Tom Brady went in to the least winningest franchise in NFL history according to win percentage. And in his first season there, a team that hadn't been to the playoffs in 13 years, he leads them to a Super Bowl. It's it's unbelievable. And going into the game, you had all these stats coming out about Tom Brady and his dominance, and, and there's too many to read, and it really is impressive. But now Tom Brady sits as the winningest, Super Bowl-wise, winningest franchise of all time. Tom Brady has seven rings. The Patriots and the Steelers have six. So he has more than any one franchise does. Obviously, he has five, uh, six with the Patriots, and it's just, it's incredible. The fact that he's 43 years old. I mentioned the weapons. He's got Mike Evans. He's got Chris Godwin. He's got Antonio Brown. He's got Gronk. He's got all the running backs. And all those guys, 
came up and played. But most importantly, he's got a really good defense. Those Tampa Bay Buccaneer defensive linemen are animals, absolute monsters. They rushed four for a good majority of that game, and Patrick Mahomes was rushed on, I believe, 48% of his dropbacks, so 27 of 56 dropbacks. And again, a lot of those dropbacks came towards the end of the game when this was already out of hand and the Buccaneers were going to go on to win the Super Bowl. And I think when you look at the way this game played out, Tom Brady wins his fifth Super Bowl MVP, had a good line, but I I think when it comes down to it, I, I thought that was just lip service or fan favoritism because the defense was the real stars of this game, specifically defensive coordinator Todd Bowles and middle linebacker Devin White. Now, I know you can't give the award to a coordinator, but damn, that sure is a shame because Todd Bowles put together the perfect game plan to beat the Kansas City Chiefs and in the process may have created the blueprint for the rest of the league to how to slow down that high-flying offense. And I know Kansas City was without they're starting tackles. Mahomes was banged up. He had the toe injury. He's going to have off-season surgery. He played heroic. So regardless of how he was feeling, he went out and balled out. His team let him down a little bit. But that being said, the Week 12 matchup between these two teams came up large in in this instance because the Buccaneers took what they saw that game. In that game, Mahomes had over 300 passing yards in the first half. Tyreek Hill had 200 receiving yards in the first quarter. They were not going to let Tyreek Hill have single coverage at all this game. They did two deep safety almost the entire game. They had help over the top the entire game. Travis Kelsey ate, but you saw what happens. You can disrupt this Chiefs offense, and it's hard to play catch up. And I know we've seen the Chiefs do it over and over again. Last year, they overcame double digits in every game on their way to the Super Bowl title. But when you are playing against a Tom Brady-led offense and a team that was as locked in as the Buccaneers have been, as we saw in the final score, it was really it was going to be hard to overcome falling behind to that team. Because that defense, I tell you what, that defense flies around and plays with a level of physicality that... I hadn't seen this season at least, but one of the more physical defenses that I remember watching of recent memory. They just fly around with the ball. I mentioned Devin White earlier. That guy, 4-4-2 speed for a middle linebacker is just insane, and he puts it to use on the field. He's all over the place, making tackles inside, making tackles on sweeps, chasing down tight ends, intercepting passes in the end zone. I mean, this guy is a stud in the making. He's very young. He's got Levante David next to him. And then up front, they've got JPP, Shaq Barrett, and Ndamukong Sue, just just maulers. And 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 really, the, the reason the Bucs won this game, like I mentioned, they had a great defensive game plan, but they dominated the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. And honestly, at the, when it, you, can, you can come up with all the gimmicky plays and and movement and everything that the Chiefs had. And the Chiefs have been on a great run the past two years. I'm not trying to dog them. I still think they're contenders and will be back. Um, But it just goes to show you that if you dominate the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball in the NFL, you will be successful. And that's what we saw down the stretch here from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And honestly, uh, the scariest thing to me is the fact that Brady looked so good throughout this stretch that 
who knows how many years he has left? How many years do we have left of this gauntlet that Tom Brady just won't go away, continues to get to Super Bowls, continues to win Super Bowls, continues to be a difference maker on his team, went in there, completely changed the entire trajectory of that franchise. And I'm, I respect the hell out of him. I acknowledge him as the GOAT, but I just want him to go away. Please let other people have a chance. I'm sick of seeing you up there holding the Lombardi, but I'm sure you'll be back there next year doing it because that's all you live for, and I got to respect you for that. Now, on the other end, going into this game, there was a lot of talk behind Mahomes and about how if he wins this game, he might already be a Hall of Famer and the GOAT. And I participated in those conversations. I think he is off to a Hall of Fame start. Now, obviously, longevity uh, is has to be taken into account. And the fact that he lost this game, to me, means that he needs to do a little bit more. But if he would have started his first three, three seasons of starter as a starter with an MVP, two Super Bowls, and two Super Bowl MVPs, that's as good as, of a resume as one can put out there. So, but he didn't win. So now, where does the conversation go? Because like I said, he played heroic in that game. He went out there and did everything he could, made throws that only he can make from angles that nobody can make it from. And right on the dot, hitting guys in the hands, hitting them in the helmet. But at the end of the day, couldn't get it done. And now he runs into, obviously, statistically, he's going to be one of the greatest if he continues on this path that he started for himself because his arm talent and acumen for the game are just out of control, almost unbelievable. But now he runs the risk of falling into that same category as guys like Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, who is now maybe in that list of guys who went to Super Bowls, won Super Bowls earlier on in their career and have failed to get back to that big game. Now I bring up Brett Favre and Russell Wilson because it's almost identical. Now Favre was a little bit more tenured as a Packer at this point, but Early on after he became starter, the Packers uh, went to an NFC championship and then two straight Super Bowls winning one. Russell Wilson, start of his career, almost the same thing. Went to an NFC championship, went to two Super Bowls in a row, won one, lost one. Aaron Rodgers, been to one Super Bowl only, won it, but has never been back. So it just goes, Tom Brady makes it look insanely easy. I promise you that it is not. As a Bears fan, I know firsthand you have to take advantage of that opportunity because it might never come again. I think about 2006 all the time because that team was good enough to win and they lost the Super Bowl. And lo and behold, the Bears haven't been back since. So you got to take advantage of those opportunities. And the Chiefs seem like they're set up to, to get back to this point, but you just never know what's going to happen. The Bills could take another step forward next year. The Ravens could take that step forward that everyone's thinking. You, you just you never know, and nothing is guaranteed, so you don't want to squander those opportunities when you have them because unless your name is Tom Brady, the Super Bowl is far from a guarantee, especially considering when we're talking about guys like Favre, Rodgers, and Russell Wilson. Maybe not Russell Wilson, but Favre and Rodgers – for sure, are considered two of the most gifted quarterback, physically gifted quarterbacks of all time. No one really considers Tom Brady one of the most physically gifted quarterbacks of all time. He just works harder than everybody and is the best winner. But a guy like Aaron Rodgers, I think a lot of people would talk consensus that he is the greatest talent we have ever seen at quarterback as far as just everything that goes into playing the position. Yet, he's only been able to get to one Super Bowl, 
Luckily, he won it, but he's had great teams and great seasons in between, including this year and last year where he made it back to the NFC Championship game but has never been able to make it back, and that's because football is really hard and there's a lot of parity in the NFL. Finding the right QB turned the Bucks into Super Bowl champ. The Bears continue their search, and there's a lot of rumors swirling around them. We'll discuss the rumors next here on Old Sport Radio on SportstownChicago.com. But Carson Wentz talks have been heating up. They've been going on. There's enough interest from teams like the Bears, the Colts, others that have weighed in. The Bears, the Bears, the Bears. Carson is, is really damaged goods right now. I mean, really. I mean, I think just from a mental standpoint, I, 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 Mitch Kavisky is more stable than, and then, than Carson. You heard that right. Welcome back into Old Sport Radio here on SportstownChicago.com. That was first the voice of Adam Schefter on the Get Up on ESPN disc- discussing the Carson Wentz trade speculation. And second, that was Boomer Esiason on the recently repaired Park- Parkins and Spiegel show. Congrats to Matt Spiegel on getting his afternoon slot back, which he never should have been taken out of in the first place. But regardless, happy to hear them back. Chicago radio is better for it. And you heard not a lot of upside or confidence in Carson Wentz from Boomer Esiason's point of view. And the Bears are being mentioned as one of the front runners to trade for Carson Wentz. They need to address the quarterback situation. At the end of the day, Wentz is 28 years old. He was the number two overall pick back in 2016, although he is coming off of his worst season as a starter, where he led the league in turnovers, even though he was benched for the last three games of the season. And the rumored deal that the Bears were talking about were were Nick Foles, Tariq Cohen, and a first-round pick for Carson Wentz and a third-rounder. And naturally, most Bears fans, or football fans in general, seem to be against that don't want to give up any capital for Carson Wentz. Hearing those scathing reviews from Boomer Esiason and others throughout this week don't offer a whole lot of hope or confidence, but I am still choosing to remain impartial for one until anything actually happens, but I would give them the benefit of the doubt if this move was made. I feel like if you're going to give up draft capital, you should just try and go after Watson and see what you, what they're willing to give up, give him up for. Obviously, with Matthew Stafford bringing back three number one picks, the price is going to be high for Watson. But one seems like the guy that the Bears have their eye on, and it makes sense for a few different reasons, including the fact that he's played his whole career in the same offense that Matt Nagy wants to run and up until last season had played pretty well. I mentioned he was bad last year, but in the previous three seasons before that, Carson Wentz threw 81 touchdowns to 21 interceptions and averaged a 99 QBR over those three seasons. So at his best is probably better than any quarterback 
the Bears have ever had suit up for their organization, which isn't saying much because the Bears have one of the worst track records when it comes to quarterback play. But uh, the 2017 season, I believe, was the MVP season, uh, 13 games in. He was the front runner for the MB- MVP, had 31 touchdowns, only seven interceptions, I believe, was also rushing the ball like crazy. Tore his ACL in week 13. Obviously, the Eagles go on and still win the Super Bowl with Nick Foles, and that kind of altered Wentz's trajectory, maybe a little bit, or at least his standing within the fan base in Philadelphia, but was clearly better than any quarterback the Bears ever had that season. And then in the two seasons um, following there, the one season after that, he led a 9-7 and Eagles team that had a lot of injuries um, to the playoffs and played well again. And last year, you don't want to make excuses for a guy because it seemed like one of those situations to where as the season kept going on, he kept getting progressively worse and pretty much deteriorating with the weight of all the poor play on him. And that's there's so much mental aspect when it comes to playing the quarterback position. I, I could never do it, but... I think it just weighed on him, and, and it's the, the more that it went on, the worse he played because he was trying to press so much. But the Eagles had a crazy amount of injuries for skill position players last year. I, I want to say they didn't have any of their top four receivers for the first four weeks of the season. So you're going in with your fifth string receiver as your number one guy. Never a great thing. And then they also set a record for the most line combinations over the course of a season. They had an entirely different five-man offensive line in every single game they played last year, which is just absurd. When you think about how important continuity is to good line play, all the good offensive lines along the around the league are ones that, for one, are starting the same five guys pretty much every game, but... Those guys spend all their time together. They they function as a unit. They learn to to work together as a unit, and that all comes with practice time and obviously game time. And when you're cycling through your offensive line pairings like that, it's hard to develop any traction and be successful. And as we saw down the stretch, Jalen Hurts had some opportunities to play. He's a little bit more mobile than Wentz and made some things happen, but the, it's not like the Eagles were going out there and winning games. They finished at the bottom of a very bad NFC East division. And obviously it ended up costing Doug Peterson his job just three years after bringing the first Super Bowl in franchise history to them. But when it comes down to it, I, I know Boomer mentioned at the end of there that he thinks that we the Bears would be better sticking with Mitch and Mitch is in better standing than Wentz. And I, I just, I don't believe that because Mitch's downfall The weak part of his game, I don't think he can fix, and it's the mental part of the game. It's reading defenses, it's pre-snap coverages. It's things that four years in, he should be improving on these things by now. And Mitch is clearly a one-read guy, locks into his read, and it costs him a lot of the times because you see these interceptions that he throws where it's just the stupidest throws, but the guy is locked in, so the defender's locked in on him. And if not Wentz... Who do you go and get then? I mentioned Watson. You're going to have to give up a boatload of a haul to get him, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but I just, the Bears need to win now, and I don't know that I'm willing, and I shouldn't say that. I would be willing to to mortgage the future for Watson, but I don't know that this 
front office is going to be willing to do that because they have to win this season. But that would be a good way to win this season. But what else is out there? I mean, free agents, we got 39-year-old Ryan Fitzpatrick. Does that, you know, well, he's going to come and play for a little bit, and then the younger guy is going to take his spot. 34-year-old Andy Dalton, does that excite anybody? 32-year-old Tyrod Taylor, who seemingly has the worst luck of any quarterback in the league. Do you want a 32-year-old Cam Newton off of an eight-touchdown season in 15 games as a starter? Point being, there aren't a lot of great options out there. Now, you could maybe take a flyer on a guy like Jameis Winston, but seems like a bad fit for the offense. And, and I just I don't think Matt Nagy would be the right guy to kind of work with Jameis and get him to where he needs to be. Because obviously, as a former number one pick, Jameis has a lot of talent and has proven that he can sling the ball in this league. He had 5,000 yards and over 30 touchdowns two seasons ago. Obviously, he threw the 30 interceptions as well, but good arm talent and uh, good potential, but just kind of needs the right situation. And the the vibe that I'm getting from listening to sports talk radio throughout the week and hearing all these different people talk about the speculation is no one thinks that this Bears coaching staff is equipped to turn a quarterback around. So a guy like Carson Wentz has a lot of upside, has played great in this league, just seems like he needs a change of scenery to kind of untap that potential again. And Boomer mentioned in that interview, he thinks Indianapolis and going to Frank Reich underneath a guy that once has played for before would be the best thing for him. And coming here, playing for a guy like Nagy, who is basically playing for his job this year and as on the hot seat as one can be going into a season that just doesn't feel like a good situation to put a quarterback in especially one who is struggling with confidence issues. I'm not sure that's the right situation to bring a guy into and, and hope that he can turn it around and return to form, to MVP form that we saw from him back in 2017. The Chicago Bulls have been playing fun basketball lately, and they have one of the league's most exciting offenses, but it doesn't seem to be translating into wins. I'll tell you why Bulls fans need to be patient when we come back here on SportstownChicago.com. Here's Levine on his way to the rim, to the rack, no good! Wow. Beal gets fouled and wow, that'll do it. Yes, the Bulls lost a heartbreaker the other night to the lowly Washington Wizards 105-101 after Zach Levine failed to convert on what would have been a game-tying field goal at the end of the game there. Hard to fault Zach Levine, though. He's been an all-star this year, and if you're listening and you're a Bulls fan, you should go out and vote for Zach Levine to make the all-star game because the dude is balling out this year and deserves it, I would say, more than anybody, but Bradley Beal deserves it more than Zach Levine, but Zach Levine would be next on my list because he has been the, I I won't say lone bright spot, but he has been the brightest spot for this Chicago Bulls team this year. I mentioned before that The Bulls have been playing better offensively. They've been exciting to watch, but it's not translating into wins. And I know that's frustrating, especially when we're losing to teams like the Wizards. And they've been improved, but the Knicks, teams that we should be competing against and and beating consistently, we're struggling with. You know, we split with the Magic last week. 
a team that we should be better than, in my opinion. And it's tough. It's tough because they're first. They're in their first season in a new system with Billy Donovan, and and that has been noticeably better having Billy Donovan in the mix rather than Jim Boylan because this is a professional team now and they play like one and we don't hear these things about trying to build the bench and this that and the other thing Jim Boylan was just not a head coach Billy Donovan is and the defense is slowly getting better they've learned a new system which is difficult but they're also dealing with injuries again, and that's been the killer the last few years as well. Now we've got Lowry marketing out for two to four weeks with a shoulder sprain, and this is after Wendell Carter Jr. has been out for the last few weeks with a quad contusion or strain. I forget exactly what the injury was, but these are key guys that we need to see if they are key guys and they continue to be injured, but they're still playing better than they were last year, and I think that just a little bit longer in Billy Donovan's system, a little bit more time playing together, they can build up that continuity. Once they settle into this defensive scheme a little bit more, I think they'll start pulling off some wins and really start making a push for the bottom seeds in the East. When we come back, the annual Pakota projections were released today, much to the chagrin of Chicago White Sox fans. I will discuss where the number came in and why it's meaningless to pay attention here on Old Sport Radio on SportstownChicago.com. We've been football-centric, guys, but am I seeing this right? Pakoda has the Cubs being better than the White Sox this year? Not necessarily. It has them with a, high, a likelihood of having more wins. Are you for serious, Don? Welcome back into Old Sport Radio here on SportstownChicago.com. I'm Pat Riley. The voices you just heard there were of from 670 to score, transition between Moline Haw and Bernstein and Rahimi, talking about the Pakoda projections that were released yesterday. And if you are a Chicago baseball fan, you were left scratching your head just a little bit after they were released because... The Chicago White Sox, who are heavily heavily hyped and considered one of the betting favorites to go to the World Series, were projected to, with 83 wins, and to finish third in the AL Central. The Minnesota Twins, the two-time reigning AL Central champs, with no playoff wins in those times, were projected 91 wins, and the Cleveland Indians, who traded Francisco Lindor and Carrasco and boast a $36 million payroll as it stands, were projected 86 wins, three wins more than the White Sox. So as far as the Pakoda projections go, the White Sox aren't getting a whole lot of love or at least not the same type of love that they were getting nationally uh, after their breakout season last year which ended in a heartbreaking loss to the Oakland A's in the wild card round of the playoffs that went to the third game but a lot of high hopes especially considering all the the moves that the Sox made this offseason now they didn't make any of the big splash moves for the big free agents that we were hoping but they have done enough for what I think 
to make them considered one of the top teams in the AL. Starting with um, bolstering their rotation and their bullpen. So they traded for Lance Lynn, the workhorse from the Texas Rangers last year, and they had to give up a little bit to get him. A lot of people weren't happy about giving up five years of Dane Dunning for potentially one year of Lance Lynn, but Lance Lynn is an inning eater, and he finished top five in Cy Young voting last year in the AL. And when it came down to it at the end of last year, what hurt the White Sox was not having enough depth in their pitching staff. As we saw in that game three, Giolito pitched great in game one, got them the win. And then in game two, Keuchel didn't have his best stuff, got hit worse than he had gotten hit all season. They end up losing game three. They throw Dunning out there, but the plan was a bullpen game. Dunning ends up getting one out before Ricky Renteria turned to Garrett Crochet, who had been lights out in the playoff but suffered an injury, which just in turn, it threw off the whole plan of the bullpen game, and he had to go to guys earlier than expected, and in the end, uh, it ended up faulting the White Sox as they gave up um, some runs and ended up losing that game, weren't able to overcome the mistakes from the manager, and it resulted in him being fired. Now we talk about Tony Lusa got brought in, a very unconventional hire in the sense that uh, he's in his 70s and had gotten a DUI in February last year, which the White Sox knew about and still went forward with the offer anyway, but seems a little bit out of touch from the game in the sense that he is so much older, 50 years older in some cases than his players. But from everything I've heard, he seems locked in, dialed in. He created the bullpen. So to give this guy this type of bullpen does get me a little bit excited, but you just worry uh, that he might disrupt the culture that the White Sox spent so much time and effort creating over these last four or five years. And, and I don't think that's something that should be understated because they they struggled for so long. They they tanked. They they basically went through the rebuild. They sold the house. They 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 got minor league prospects. They rebuilt from within. They did all the right things. And they have also built this culture of kind of back against the wall guys and, and their whole change of the game. They want to do things their way. They got a bunch of young, lively, energetic players. Tim Anderson leads the way. And that was part of what made this team so fun to watch last year as well. Not only playing well and winning games, but just seeing the fun that they had doing it and the energy and the effort that they put in at the ballpark every single day. At its fundamental... Baseball is a sport, and every single baseball player who made it to the majors started out playing that sport as a labor of love and not to become a professional. They play baseball because they love it, and eventually when they get good enough, they those aspirations grow to becoming a professional and to making a career out of it. But these guys all love the game, and seeing the White Sox perform as well as they did last year while having as much fun as they did, to me as a fan, was amazing. I watched more Sox games last year in a shortened 60-game season than I had watched probably the previous two seasons. And I knew that they were building up to this. I don't want to sound like I'm not supporting the team, but I'll just tell it how it is. Baseball is a 
is can be a tough sport to watch. They're long games. They can be long games. They can be boring games sometimes. Now, myself personally, I appreciate the game for what it is, and I don't have to watch a game, and there doesn't have to be 10 home runs hit for me to enjoy a baseball game. I can appreciate a really good pitcher's matchup, a really good defense played by infielders, you know, backhand scoops, diving plays, anything like that. I I am a romantic for the game of baseball. I love all the fine details, not just home runs. And and that's kind of what the game has turned into nowadays. I heard a stat the other day that they track how many home runs are hit in the major leagues every five years, and they kind of update. And between 2014 and 2019, there was 1,900 home runs hit. The previous most over any five-year span was 900. So in the last five years, they doubled what the most home runs over a five-year span was. 900 from 2009 to 2014, 1,900 from 2014 to 2019. And Rob Manfred addressed that the other day, saying that they're going to try and figure out ways to reduce the home run rate a little bit because all we're seeing right now is home runs and strikeouts. But I'm getting beside myself here. I want to get back to the Pakota projections. I mentioned the White Sox projected 83 wins. On the other side of town, the Cubs projected 84 wins. Now, I know this this isn't a Cubs versus White Sox thing, but here in Chicago, everything baseball-related is a Cubs versus White Sox thing. And I'm sorry, but as a White Sox fan... I didn't sit here and sit through the last five to seven years of the golden years of the Chicago Cubs, watching them win a World Series in 2016 to break the 108-year curse. I didn't sit through all those things angrily holding it together just so when the White Sox are finally there, they're finally on the cusp of overtaking the Cubs as the team in this town Pakoda to come in and smack me in the face like that, okay? Just project the Sox with more wins than the Cubs, and I wouldn't have even cared about this list, and I don't really care about this list, but it's just the rivalry in me, and as a White Sox fan, I can't avoid it when I see the Cubs have a better number than the White Sox in a season where the White Sox are supposed to excel and finally bust through that ceiling the proverbial ceiling and to get through the playoffs and maybe get to the next round this year or or maybe even get to the World Series if all works out well. This is where our minds are at, Sox fans. Our our brains are here now. And now we have to get these projections and see the Cubs, the team that we take a back seat to constantly, be projected with more wins than the White Sox. And it doesn't sit right with me because, like I said, the Sox, last year they made their first stride. They made the playoffs They were one of the best offensive teams in baseball. Their pitching was great, even if it did lack depth. Now they have that depth. They also went out and they signed Liam Hendricks from the A's. So they have arguably the best bullpen in the American League, if not baseball as well. Michael Kopech will be back in the mix this year. That doesn't inspire a ton of confidence, but he has a live active arm. He's got a lot of potential and this is the time for him to come and make a statement with this team that's ready to win. They signed Adam Eaton. I know it's not a popular move. He is a scrappy player. He is a good player, not a great player. He is a marginal improvement from Nomar Mazzara. So that's all that really matters. I would 
personally rather see some sort of platoon with him and Adam Angle because I thought Angle played really well in spots last year, especially we know he's a great defender, but he played really well at the plate last year, and I would like to see him get some more plate appearances. Honestly, at the end of the day, when it comes down to these Pakoda projections, I just think that there's only so much that an algorithm can tell, and they're inputting all this information, they're taking all these numbers, and out comes a number. And it doesn't take into account the human aspect of the game of baseball, which is plays a huge factor on a day-to-day basis. And I think that they're probably looking at it that the Sox have so many young contributors on this team as well that they're expecting regression, which is fair because that happens a lot. But I'm hoping that we'll see progression or just same progression as last year. I'd, regression all across would be the worst-case scenario for the White Sox. I find that hard to believe that that would happen. Guys like Tim Anderson really established themselves last year. Yoan Mankata dealt with COVID but bounced on pretty strong at the end. Luis Robert got off to a hot start, slowed down. Eloy Jimenez was awesome until he got hurt. And then obviously Jose Abreu won MVP. So those four guys, Anderson, Mankata, Abreu, Eloy, and throw Grandal into the mix. I think those five guys will kind of carry this offense through and allow those younger players to go through these growing pains that most players see in their second and third seasons. I also think that these projections come from the fact that the Sox didn't play the two teams that were projected ahead of them very well last year as they finished 5-5 five and five versus the Twins and 2-8 and eight versus Cleveland. So got to play better against those teams within your division. You can't just come into this year and expect to feast on the bottom dwellers like they did last year with the Royals and the Tigers. You really have to play better, especially against the twi- uh, the Indians. You know, you went 5-5 five and five against Minnesota. You'd like to see a winning record, but at least you split. Mid- Cleveland just kicked your butts last year, including a four-game sweep down the stretch, which kind of they overtook you as second place, which gave the White Sox a third-place finish in the AL Central. But, yeah, you can't go 2-8 and eight against one of your main rivals and one of – um, your main competitors within the division. I know, like I said, that they that's not necessarily cleared house, but they traded some some great players, and they have a small payroll this year, but they still have really good pitching, which is always going to make a team dangerous. So the White Sox can't afford to take any of these teams for granted. They really need to go out and try and put their best foot forward against both the Twins and Indians. If you're a Sox fan, do what I, I know I'm talking about this and complaining about it. That's only because I have the platform to do so. At the end of the day, I'm not really letting this number affect how I feel about this team going in. I think that this team is primed to get out and win the AL Central this year. I think that that playoff loss last year, as much as it hurt at the time, I think that's going to pay huge dividends down the stretch for this team. For one, getting that playoff experience for the young players, but then also just getting that taste and that hunger of postseason baseball. These guys have had it now, and they got there, and, and they won a game, and they game, they came damn close to winning a series, but they ultimately fell short, and, and that's got to leave a really bad taste in your mouth. And I mentioned before that this team has such good chemistry, and they work so well together that I have 100% confidence that this that loss last year has pushed all the right buttons for this White Sox roster, and they are all getting after it, working their butts off this offseason, making sure that they can come back and continue that momentum that they built up last year with that playoff run. 
and ultimately go further this year than they did last year. You know, why stop at the first round? Try and get to the ALCS. Let's win a damn World Series. This team has enough talent, and windows do not stay open very long in any sport, so you want to make sure that you take advantage of the window when it is open. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all I've got for you here on Old Sport Radio. Here on SportstownChicago.com. I appreciate everybody for listening. If you don't already, join our Facebook group. Just search Old Sport and submit a request. You can follow me on Twitter at ToThePatCave. Hope everyone has a fantastic evening. This is Pat Riley, and I'm out.